restaurants, norms, and all others. Welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and I am one of our two usual hosts for this show. Sadly, our good friend Paul will not be joining us this evening because he is off in the desert preparing for the new Bolt Action book that is coming quick and fast towards us. In fact, the pre-orders for the new campaign Western Desert book just went up on the Warlord website. You can get this book in your hot little hands on the 8th of September. But if you would like to get in on any of the deals or the special miniature, now is the time to pre-order. I am particularly excited about that. But that is not what we are here to talk about tonight. Uh, The retro 8-bit music at the beginning of this episode should be a clue that we are going back in time to talk about the future this fine evening and to get into all sorts of futuristic and weird gaming. And to do that, we need to be joined by our guests. Now, our guests tonight are some of the great war game writers and developers that literally exist in the world today. Warlord has brought in the big guns for this book, and tonight we are going to talk to them. And we're not just going to get one guest, we're going to get two greats for the price of one. And our first guest tonight is new to the Warlord cast. Now, when I say new, of course, if you've been around the wargaming world for any length of time, you will know this guy's name. Um, He has written quite a few novels for Black Library. He, of course, was a famous member of the Games Workshop studio uh, back in the day and worked on both Warhammer Fantasy, Warhammer 40K, and a slew of other games. Um, I knew him as the guy who broke the Wraith Lord rules way back when. (laughs) <laughs> Gav Thorpe, welcome to the Warlord cast. How are you today, man? I'm good, thank you. Yes, Toughness 8 Wraith Lords, that was me. That's oh, right. the so, burn. <laughs> I'm still, get, still getting hate mail. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, uh, there was a 40K Grand Tournament way back in the day where I, uh, I ended up having to play something like five out of my six games were against Eldar players, and all of them had at least two Wraith Lords. And I was just going, Gav Thorpe! <laughs> Yes, between them and the, I think the others was the uh, the Blood Angels uh, was mm-hmm. the ones that people um, got a little bit up in arms about. But, yeah. you know, water under the bridge, I'm sure. That's Everyone's right. forgotten that. Well, I, I, I've had to forgive because I've been uh, a big fan of a lot of the novels you've been writing in recent years. And uh, I've just, I just love the way that you flesh out universes. Um, you take concepts from game books and then you take them and tease them out into full-blown novels where you, you w- world build. You don't just put us in the same places we've always been with the characters and the, the classes of things, you know. Uh, types that we're used to you you build those universes and you expand them out so that um you know the the games that we play expand beyond the tabletops and uh i think it's you're one of those rare authors that has taken concepts from a game book put it in a novel and then that's been put back in a game book so um that's a pretty awesome a skill to have and b just makes you really sort of awesome. So um, <laughs> how yes. you've been doing that for quite a while now. Um, what sort of struck you to start novel writing in the first place? Um, well, it was, I, um, I was sat two tables down from the guy that was starting up Black Library. But yeah, I know it's a great, isn't it? Um, so yeah, when, when, when Black Library was started up um, and they, they launched 
Inferno magazine, which was their short fiction magazine every two months. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy Jones, who was in charge of it at the time, asked me if I wanted to write some short stories for it. Uh, so I, I did that. And then uh, when they started up the novel line, they were taking characters from the short stories. So Dan Abnett's um, Commissar Gaunt and things. And so I was asked if I wanted to do a novel based on Lieutenant Cage and The Last Chances. Mm-hmm. So it kind of just went there, really. I've just um, I've been fortunate enough to be in a position to, to do that, really. You know, I was... Um, always into the world obviously as a teenager and I when I joined games workshop getting to work on the games um and the background for the games it's it's been um it's been a great opportunity like I say to delve further into that it's always been about uh for me for the black library and the novels has always been about taking what's already there uh, and looking at it in more detail and it, and it as soon as you start any story or book it kind of it raises questions of the background that you have to answer and i think that's what people find interesting uh, people are always examining it and it's the strength of the of the universe as well that you can continue to do that for 20 years and people still find it interesting definitely absolutely and you, but you've also you haven't quit your day the quote-unquote day job i don't know which one is your day job now <laughs> but um you're still doing game design and uh, one of the things that we're talking about today is uh what you've been working on uh, but before we can get into that, uh, we have we have a very patient man sitting in the background who is our other major guest tonight. Um, he, of course, is no stranger to this podcast um, or Warlord fans in general, having written several of the books, including the Ostfront Bolt Action book, the Soviet Bolt Action book, and, of course, Blood Red Skies. Uh, of course, I am talking about one of the greats, well, of course, another great of the uh, wargaming pantheon, as I said earlier, Andy Chambers. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Hi there. Great to be back. I love it. You're like, oh, stop talking. Move on. Yes, I got it. I know I did this stuff. Let's talk about Blood Red Skies. So you got to be loving the... Um, just the outpouring of support and love that this game is getting, man. Tons of people are playing it. Uh, Blood Red Skies, yes, it's 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 going extremely well so far. Um, the only slight embarrassment is we can't put out more planes faster. Um, but it's it's hit a really good reception, which is which is nice. It's one of those games I've had lurking around uh, that I've just worked on in the background until the right time came for publishing it because mm-hmm. I could find a good partner. I talked about this last time I was on the show and Warlords really knocked it out of the park for me. So uh, there's a lovely game going out there now. And um, yeah, it, it's gathering quite the following so far. And I've actually... I just get to see lots of nicely painted planes all the time. Absolutely. And I've seen a number of the actual models themselves now on the tabletop, and man, they look good. World War II planes, man. They're, they're, just, they're just sexy looking. They can't help themselves. That's right. And the way the stands work um, is just very clever. I know you've talked about it on the podcast before, but maybe you can quickly mention that for people who haven't seen the game. Because that, if you see it on the tabletop, that really sets it apart from a lot of other World War II fighter games. Um, because it very cleverly um, sets up, just from a visual, just by looking at a tabletop, what's happening in the game. Because sometimes you have to look at cards or look at papers or entire reams of paper to find out what each plane is doing. And for a massed air combat game like Blood Red Skies, it just doesn't, it wouldn't work. But the way that you very cleverly built or had the stands built... Um, it really allows you to see what's happening on the tabletop just at a glance. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of developing something over a long period of time is 
in the process of developing the core rules for blood red science, we, we just ran across this little physical trick of um, angling the planes on their bases to show uh, what kind of advantage level they're at, because it, it all revolves around having three advantage levels. And that was actually really surprisingly effective on the tabletop, sort of communicating what was going on and tidy and didn't need extra markers and so on. So part of the reason I hung on for so long to find the right partners to do Blood Red Skies with was there was a, a mechanical engineering feat to be done mm. to produce a nice tilting base that would work um, and the models to go with it, which is you know a big investment in itself, but it's really paid off because it, it really does, as you say, it looks very dynamic on the tabletop. And at a glance, visually, you can see what's going on, which is gold dust, really. Very happy with that. I'm very proud of it. Definitely. And I love how the last time you were on, you were hinting that perhaps we would start getting bombers soon. And we're already getting them. I mean, Warlord's already giving us models. I, in fact, have some in the mail right now. So I'm very excited to see what those bring to the tabletop. One of the nice things about working in a, in a historical period like World War II is that you can find stuff out there that, that's already done by different manufacturers and so on. And in, in the case of the bombers, it was like, as it happens, Svezda, uh, do a range of one 200-scale aircraft, bombers and transports, which fit in perfectly with Blood Red Skies. So, um, yeah, we've made a deal with them so that we can supply them with the bases and the cards in little packs of three uh, to use in Blood Red Skies, which is just bumper bonus territory, really. It really is. Now, have you had an opportunity to be playing any of it? I, I know you play tested it a lot before it came out, but now that you, you've sort of, the, the fruits of your labor have uh, have been born um, and people are playing it in the wild, have you had an opportunity to get out there with the community at all? Or is that one of those things that you're already working on the next thing? It, it's often painfully the case that once a game actually gets published, um, I play less of it as a rule because, you know, my work here is done to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So the, the limited amount of Blood Red Skies I've played so far. Was, the other thing I found when I started playing Blood Red Skies after it had been published is the curse of the designer. I am now rubbish at it. <laughs> I just get beaten hands down by anybody that I play. You know, people who've never played it before. They're just like, oh, well, murder the designer. So, um, yeah, there's a little less joy in it, frankly, right now because I'm, I'm cursed with designer's luck. I'm sorry to yeah. hear that. True. Oh, yeah, it's so true. If you lose constantly at games, you must be a game designer. That's true. <laughs> or your own games, particularly. <laughs> yeah, it's specifically things you design yourself, I think, you're most vulnerable to. Note to self, play your Soviets on the bolt-action tabletop. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'll be rubbish, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, let's get into uh, your guys' newest project, um, because that's something that no one can beat you at yet. Um, it's it's fresh in the minds of, you, at least your mind, and um, it is about to hit the tabletops. And uh, we've been talking about it, sort of hinting at it for the last couple of episodes, but now we actually have you on to talk about Strontium Dog. Now, as, as we talked about off-air, I'm an American who grew up abroad, and... I grew up with a lot of friends who were British, and I grew up reading a lot of 2000 AD comic books. I read Judge Dredd, I read Rogue Trooper, and I loved them. They were great. And I had heard of Strontium Dog, but until Warlords started actually talking about a miniatures game, I'll be honest, I hadn't read any. Um, and I think that that is something that you guys might have to do a little more explaining of the world 
Um, Gav, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, the Strontium Dog universe um, and uh, what what you're bringing to the tabletop, I guess? Yeah, well, Strontium Dog, uh, in a nutshell, is basically it's uh, the old west in space, really. It's uh, about bounty hunters going out um, and hunting down bad guys and bringing them in in a variety of interesting and adventurous ways. Um, the the deal with the Strontium Dog uh, concept is that all of those bounty hunters are actually mutants. Um, following a, a big atomic war, um, there's a large fallout of Strontium-90, which creates a generation of mutants who become an underclass. There's a whole backstory. Um, Strontium Dog itself and, and the origins very much focuses on um, Britain, and there's a lot of commentary is written predominantly through the 80s, so there's a lot of commentary about um, 80s Britain and things like that. But the broader story and the actual the the the, um, the characters themselves come more from that Old West, bounty hunters on the edges of civilization, frontier towns. Now, in this case, they're sort of distant planets. There um, might be aliens and mutants um, and even hunting down each other. So there's just a, a just in those terms there's lots of fodder for games um and also you know in wargaming there's quite a strong tradition of old west skirmish gaming and sort of wild west style games mm -hmm. so the strontium dog game kind of marries those two things really from from the uh, the storytelling in the strip and the kind of gaming tradition of wild west as well and just puts them together in what we hopefully is a, a kind of a nice very narrative fast play package nice Andy, um, I, I know that you've talked in the past about loving um, sort of some, some, I guess, a genre. Um, maybe it was off air, but I'm pretty sure that we talked about your love of 2000 AD and sort of pop culture of Britain and sort of that, that vein. Um, so I guess you are probably better, more equipped to answer this question than most. What is a strontium dog? Uh, it just as Gav said, he's a mutant bounty hunter. Um, it is it is very much a, a background from the old west sort of thing. I, I always draw the parallels spaghetti western specifically. Yeah. You know the Clint Eastwood films, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and stuff like that, because they're they're very much from that era uh, in terms of t stories being told. So it, it tends to be the lone protagonist or the small team, mm -hmm. a small unlikely team um, going up against the odds, going up against the bad guys, and so on. But the bad guys themselves having a lot of character too. So um, that's that's kind of where it's rooted in. And, yeah, it, it's another one of those 2000 AD classics. It really is. We were talking just before the show about you, you could read 2000 AD for years and not necessarily see some of the strips that were there in the early days because they only come around periodically. Uh, ironically, Johnny Alpha Strontium Dog has, has just kind of relaunched in 2000 AD at the moment, following on the earlier stories. So uh, these, these things are not cyclical. But yeah, it's kind of ironic that you never run across Strontium Dog, but most of the Strontium Dog strips were quite early on uh, in 2008's history, uh, though they returned to it you know, many times over the years. But back when I started reading it, and I think when Gav started reading it as well, it, it, was, it was one of the staples. Um, it was right up there with Judge Dredd as being one of the major characters. Yes, I mean, I, I think, just to clarify for people as well, yes, yeah, so the, the protagonist, the main character in Strontium Dog is called Johnny Alpha, who was one of these mutants. Um, we learn his backstory in one of the latest, one of the later arc portrait of a mutant, and he's got this whole ongoing thing with his father and stuff, um, being one of these sort of anti-mutant politicians of the time. Um, so you've got Johnny Alpha, who's the around 
you know, the story's resolved. And for most of the strips, there's his partner, Wolf, who's actually uh, a human. Uh, he's a, um, a Viking who's been brought forward in time because one of the elements of the universe is there is um, dimensional travel and time travel because, of course, why cut off any narrative openings when you can just, you know, it, so... You know, they, there's stories where they travel to a hell dimension and have to kind of win these tickets to get back to the real universe. Like I said, time traveling, all this kind of stuff, um, which gave us a massive broad base of ideas that we could just steal from, essentially, for the scenarios. But then there's another sort of supporting cast of characters, and they're all based... Um, the thing to, Most of them are the, the SD agents, the Search Destroy agents, um, and a lot of them are from the mutant wars. A lot of them are mutants, but these aren't—they're not cool mutants. They don't have really—you know—Johnny's the coolest, really, because he's got these eyes that basically allow him to see your brain waves and look through certain things. So he's kind of got sort of X-ray vision, see people behind cover, but also he can influence you or read your thoughts. Everyone else's mutations are just rubbish. Usually, it's just like you know having a hand sticking out of your head, having no torso or no head, or your face is on your knee. And people will see this from the models. They're not. These are not. X-Men. <laughs> it's almost an anti, it's a very British antidote to X-Men and that kind of, it's like, no, the whole mutants as underclass thing is still there, but it's like, you do, there's no compensation. What, there's no, oh, well, at least I get to like lift buildings with my mind and stuff. You go, no, no, you're just an underclass. Everyone hates you. Everyone looks down on you. And the only thing you're allowed to do in this universe is hunt other people because nobody else wants to do that dirty job. Um, and that's kind of the setup for it, really. Um, but that said, you know, Johnny, he's got a code. Um, he's one of the, you know, as Andy, you know, sort of mentioned in the Spaghetti Westerns, you know, he's the, he is a bit of an anti-hero, but there's that code underneath. He is the honourable one. He's the, he's the one that more often than not will actually fight for the little homesteaders or give away the money or whatever. So he, despite being one of the most successful strontium dog you know, SD agents there is, still never has any money, still never you know, gets to retire or do that sort of thing because he's not really in it for the money. He's in it for the fight. Nice. And it's it's one of those things that um, the artist who originally drew it for 2000 AD really brought a certain aesthetic to the comic um, that I think Warlord's done a really good job of bringing and putting on the tabletop. But as you say, some of the mutations that I was looking at the models and said, you know, that's a really strange choice for a model. And then you look at the comic that was based on, and it's identical to the artwork from the original strip, where you have a character with, you know, a, a knee for a face, or sorry, their face is on a character's knee, or they have no torso, or their face is sort of melted wax. Um, and it just makes for, a re as you say, a really interesting aesthetic. Um, but yeah, no one seems to have any useful mutations. Yeah, um, in fairness, in fairness, in the game, there, there are useful mutations. Um, you know, there, there are things like scaly skins and those big hands and stuff like that help you in close combat and mm. so forth. So there is a trade-off, but there's always a trade-off. You know, if it makes you good in one way, it generally makes you worse in another. But yeah, within the context of the, the comic strip, the mutations were a mark, a visible mark for other people to look down on you and treat you as scum and put you in ghettos and... You know, try and sterilize you as they did later on with the mutants on Earth. So, um, it is overall it's a story about apartheid more than anything else, mm. uh, and just bigotry towards those who were different and those in need. Um, yeah. there, there is a very strong sort of underlying moral aspect to it. And yeah, Johnny Alpha is perpetually poor, 
basically, despite the fact he brings in these million cred bounties all the time, because he gives them away to orphanages and schools and people who are down on their luck and things like that in an effort to try and make a difference. Yeah, in terms of the visuals, actually, I mean, it's one of the reasons why Strontium Dogs just lasted so well is because it was the co-creator was Carlos Esquera, just like an amazing or uh, amazing artist um, who was also one of the co-creators of Judge Dread. And you say, well, in terms of you know, uh, like I say that that aesthetic, it's one of those things that just reading the comics again, looking at it, just is carries its way all the way through all the stories. That world is um, so much a a visual world as well, like the style of the mutants, the style of the landscapes and the buildings, the weapons and things like that holds it all together because most of it for the entirety of its run, and certainly it's sort of like the classic age, was all just, it was all um, drawn by Carlos Esquera. So um, unlike Dread, which actually changed quite a lot when you got other artists working on it, there's still been a very stable presentation of Johnny Alpha and his friends for decades now. Okay. Well, how does that translate to the tabletop then? Um, are, it's, I mean, so many parts of that comic book are character-driven, where you have specific characters. Um, in, in gaming terms, we talk about them being special characters, as in named characters, unique characters that you put on the tabletop. Do you have the opportunity to play those characters? Or do you have, alternatively, do you have the opportunity in this game to create sort of generic thugs or your own um, SD agents that you can sort of play through your own narratives? Yeah, um, everything, of course. You get to cake, have your cake and eat it. Fantastic. Um, we've done specific like character cards, like a rogues gallery of named characters from Strontium Dog, like Johnny Alpha and Wolf uh, and his uh, particular nemesis, Max Bubba for example, but a, a number of other characters out of the comics, which will be available as miniatures uh, in box sets and so on, like rogues, rogue SD agents, dangerous aliens, all that kind of stuff. Also, within the context of the game, we, we've done uh, some rules, some guidelines on how to create your own characters using like a base stat line and then modifying it with things like mutations I mentioned earlier on as well, how to build different gear and guns to go on them and things like that as well. And then also, on top of that, we also have some um, generic kind of like goons and militia and local lawmen and things like that that you can basically randomly generate for a scenario uh, when you're having a game with another player. Both sides can do this and bring along some some extra uh, gun-backing idiots to get in the way of the fire and so forth. It's particularly useful if you're a bad guy, of course. Yes. So we've tried to keep it very open-ended as to it. You can play with specific named characters and just 100% all things done for you beforehand. Or you can invest a little bit of your own time in it and create your own characters too. Or you can kind of do that halfway house where you use named characters and some supplemental forces as well that you generate all of the above. Uh, and of course, one of the things is that as part of the range, there's actually a, a builder muti set um, so that you can combine the, the head and the arms and the legs and things to create your own mutant characters, whether they're going to be sort of like um, named SD characters or if you just want to have a band of muties that are going to help out Johnny Alpha. Um, obviously, one of the things about the mutations is that, that as Andy mentioned earlier, they, they tweak your stats a bit. So it's probably worth Andy talking about what those basic stats are for a little bit. Mm. Okay, so uh, the core stats for the game uh, is a very short set of stats. 
I'll admit it was somewhat inspired by old school uh, Rogue Trader and Warhammer. Basically, it runs through movement, fight, shoot, resist, evade, and cool. Yeah. Um, cool, of course, being the most important one of those stats because everybody wants to be cool. I am so glad to see Cool back. Um, I'm going to show my age a little bit. I played the original Blood Bowl, the one that had cardboard figures, um, and that was my favorite stat in that game. Uh, and just so just just to to hear that that is back in a game that I'm going to be playing. Um, I, I mean, it tags to the 2008 nostalgia that I don't really have because I didn't read Strom Team Dog back in the day, but definitely ties to my wargaming nostalgia. So this is like going home. This is awesome. Um, so tell us more, man, because this is cool. Okay. Um, the biggest thing that, that, that – let's focus on cool for a moment. The, the rest of them operate pretty much as you'd, you'd expect. Nice. I should say uh, Strom Team Dog is a, a dice pool system with special combat dice. What that means is say your stat is shoot three. That means you roll three dice, simple as. Uh, the combat dice are configured so there's three symbols which are a hit, two symbols which are like a shield or armor, and one, sim- one side is a, a special result. Mm-hmm. So if you're rolling three dice, you'll effectively be hitting on a four up on each of them, yeah, because three faces on the dice are hits. Mm-hmm. So that, that's broadly how a, a a dice pool system works. It's about a number of successes that you roll on the dice. Now, at different times, the game will ask you for different symbols. Like to do an evade, for example, is quite hard to pull off. Not many people even get an evade stat. Uh, it means dodging out of the way. Um, so you'll only roll maybe two dice for that, and you'll actually be looking for a special symbol on the dice on those ones, uh, which is like a one in six chance each. So, as you might imagine, your odds are a lot slimmer on actually pulling that off because it's more of a special move. And that kind of pervades throughout the game. The odds will shift a little bit. You'll always be rolling a number of dice. If you get uh, bonuses or minuses, for example, uh, different weapons at different ranges might get a plus or a minus on your shoot. Mm-hmm. That'll be represented by having more or less dice to roll nice. rather than modifying the, the results on the dice, if you see what I mean. Yes, definitely. Okay, so that's the dice pool system in general terms. The other interesting thing about doing the mechanics for this game is that it, it fundamentally pits what can be as little as two uh, sort of protagonists, as we term them, because uh, that's the old spaghetti western term for mm-hmm. it, against a, a, a sea of bad guys, potentially. Okay, there might be a, a, a chief bad guy, but he might have lots of little minions, lots of peons thrown your way and so forth, lots of goons with guns. So... In normal skirmish teams, how do you do that? How do you put up just a couple of models against what could be a dozen or more um, using normal activation rules and so on? And it, it doesn't make for a very exciting fight. I mean, you can certainly make individual characters so tough the other guys have got no chance of hurting them, but that, that's not a satisfying game either. Right. So for Strontium Dog, what it revolves around is it's got a, a unique activation system that was inspired by bolt action with the, the dice in the bag technique. Except in Strontium Dog, we use uh, action chips, they're called, that go into a bag. And there's two kinds of action chips. There's normal ones, and there's star chips. Ooh. And guys with high cool get star chips. (laughs) Uh, And the difference between these is, when you pull a chip out of the bag, obviously you can choose to activate any of your models that hasn't activated already. That's the core rule. And it can take two actions. It can move and shoot, or it can double move, or it can double shoot, all that sort of stuff. Sprint, climb and jump, etc. 
But once he's activated, you leave the chip by him to show that model is activated. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a star chip and you leave it by a model, you can roll to put it back in the bag. This was Gav's idea, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you can roll to put it back in the bag, and that means you have to take a cool test. So you roll one dice for each point of cool you've got, and you're looking for special results to do that. I'll do that because it's a very what you do special action that you're trying to pull off there. But if you succeed, chip goes back in the bag so it can come out again. And what's more, the model isn't marked as having done anything, so he can potentially reactivate, act again. So you'll get this sort of like burst of action coming from the high-end characters where they'll rampage around, shoot a few guys, mm-hmm. you know, run a buck about three guys on the head in the case of Wolf Sternhammer and so forth. Very satisfying. But it's always on a bit of a knife edge because if they fail that roll to put their chip back in the bag and suddenly run out of momentum in the middle of a bunch of enemies and so forth, they're liable to get their asses shot off in no short order. So it's an interesting game. There's a lot of tension to it between the very high-end guys who can achieve a lot but are always, you know, they are but mortals at the end of the day. They're a little bit more resistant. They've got a little bit more chance to evade and things like that. But if they start getting shot, they go down just like anybody else. Yeah, I like that. Um, that tension is that is excellent. And the fact that you have symbols on the dice and you're looking for a certain number of symbols or a symbol to succeed makes it very um, cinematic. It's not quite the... Oh, I'm looking for a six. Oh, I'm looking for that special symbol. And I, I know that it's visually very slightly different, but it's different mm-hmm. enough that especially people who, you know, are maybe having a, a tasty beverage with um, some pretzels <laughs> while they're playing this game, um, it just it just, you know, helps build that atmosphere. Sorry, Gab, I think I started talking the same time you did. Yeah, and uh, the other thing I was going to mention um, about cool, which makes things a bit different, when when Andy was rattling off the stats there, you heard him mention resilience, mm. which some people might think is the amount of damage you can take, which it kind of is, but actually, um, in terms of uh, taking injuries and sort of like the equivalent of wounds, it's your cool that's used. So as well as making you better, actually a higher cool makes you more likely to stick around and, and allows you to take more damage. So it's kind of your grit as well as your cool. Mm. So if you get someone like, essentially, Johnny Alpha, for instance, is cool five, um, which is, I think he's, he may have ended up the only character with cool five. I can't remember. If, I believe he is, Gav. I think nobody yeah, else is more Because he cool. is the coolest. Everyone knows yeah. he's the coolest. Um, so he can, you know, rolling those cool checks to put the star chip back in, um, obviously he's got quite a good chance of doing that. But also, um, he, he can actually take quite a bit of damage. He can take a few injuries before he'll he'll stop fighting. Mm. Um, but it does mean it degrades. So, and, and I think that's one of the... the the most narrative bits, actually, um, of the system that Andy came up with, which is this idea that, like I say, they can do quite a lot, but if you can... Um, they start really slowing down. You know, when you're suddenly down to cool three, making that roll to put the star chip in, it starts becoming, a, you know, well, it starts becoming 50-50, uh, and you're not quite as cocky as you were at the start of the game. But then, you know, there's also recovery action, so you can start to... to um, uh, get your call back, and, and injuries basically f- uh, are a flat modifier across your stats. So they affect your shoot, your resilience, everything else. So once you start taking damage, it can tend to spiral if you're not careful. So it's all good while it's good, <laughs> but then you know even Johnny Alpha, if he's if he gets a bit too sure of himself, can go down in fairly quick fashion to uh, a horde of goons. So um, which, which keeps it that kind of keeps the balance. I, sp- I suppose is that it sometimes you'll play and then Johnny and Wolf will just tear through them 
and it, and, you, and they keep that momentum going. And sometimes you you, you fluff a, a roll at the wrong time. You don't get to do that double action you wanted to do and stuff. And then suddenly, like in the comics, it will go horribly wrong, and you have to kind right. of dig yourself out of a situation. Nice, and that all ties into. I mean, some days you know the game goes your favor, and sometimes it goes to your opponents. But that all plays into the larger narrative um, that this game is sort of built around, isn't it? It goes beyond just one-off games with your mate. I mean, you can play it that way, but you designed this game to be more than that, didn't you, Andy? Yes, yeah, we, we've we've had an eye on um, the kind of the campaign, the the series of interlinked games at the very least. So one of the systems that. Um, I ask Gab to work on quite a lot uh, in terms of scenarios. It's not just that the the scenarios are quite variable and replayable in lots of different ways, um, but also that there's potentially baggage that gets carried from one game into the next in terms of grudges and you know mighty deeds and so forth. And I perhaps you could touch on that a little bit more detail, Gav. Yes, I mean one of the like I say when we approached this, obviously we wanted a fun game, but we because we wanted to translate what happens in the comic strips mm. onto the table in some fashion, um, that narrative and those situations uh, kind of informed the way I designed the scenarios. So, um, again, and looking at some of the sort of like the way old West skirmish games used to uh, sort of function. So we break break down a scenario into three elements, really. You have the setup, mm -hmm. then you have the job, and then you have the payoff, which kind of work as a scenario, but also work in terms of the narrative hook. So the setup is essentially you determine what the protagonist is, well, who the protagonist is, what they're there to do. So are they there to rob the other guys, try and, if there's a headhunt scenario, trying to take out the other leader, uh, all those, you know, sort of the skirmish scenarios you might expect. Um, but then you also determine the encounter, which actually uh, means how do they meet? Uh, is it one side in their lair being ambushed by the other, um, all these kinds of things. So even though you might be trying the same job, there's maybe three different setups of how you do that. So there's quite a bit of variety from the outset. And then you have the payoff, which essentially is the money. What do you actually earn creds for? Um, and it's done in such a way that you obviously, the protagonist uh, and the defender in some cases will earn cash for achieving that job, but then you have to pay cash for people that get uh, injured. There's other ways of getting creds back by not using some of the cards, which we'll get into. So even if you actually achieve a job, if you end up getting all your guys blasted away doing it, you may end up actually earning less money than the other player, in which case, in theory, they've won. Now, um, when we started looking at the campaign, again, uh, the first thing we looked at is sort of like, sort of like the traditional campaign settings you, you sort of get in most games, like some of the old GW games or current GW games, Blood Bowl and Necromunda, but also other systems from essentially you track the participants in your warband. They get better, you change up the guns, you do this mm -hmm. sort of thing. And that didn't really seem appropriate for Struntium Dog because Wolf Stonehammer doesn't trade in uh, the happy stick for a Blazuga uh, because his ballistic skill goes up. You know, he's. Right. He's always Wolf Sternhammer. Johnny's always Johnny. Mid face McNulty is always mid face McNulty. They don't. They're already good, so they don't necessarily get better. Um, and they also, you know, they're, because they're comic characters, they don't necessarily change their guns and do this sort of thing. Um, so 
we focused again on the narrative side of it. So what you do is when you've got a group of two or more players playing a campaign is the leaders of the war bands build grudges against each other. And what that does is start to dictate the sort of games that you'll play. So if you get beaten a lot, if you have a bad mm -hmm. loss against uh, another player, you'll get quite a lot of grudges against them. And what happens is in a future scenario, you can trade those grudges in or the, those grudges will affect so you're more likely to be the protagonist. You'll maybe get some extra help turn up, that sort of thing. So um, the game, again, it changes the setup of the games as you progress. And if it gets bad enough that you just keep getting beat and beat, you'll essentially, uh, it'll get to the point where only taking out the other leader will do. And you'll get a, like a headhunt with these special bonuses and other guys turning up so that you have to try and take out the enemy leader. Um, the other side of it, because campaigns can sort of sometimes just dwindle away a bit, you still want an end goal. So essentially, you can either f try to build up your notoriety, which is kind of the point system, but you can also spend it on things like improving your base camp with watchtowers and traps and uh, a tavern or you know a bar and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, or you can try and essentially save your cash. So one of the systems that you have in the in the, the standard scenarios is you have what's called collateral. So we were talking earlier about the goons and the allies and things like that. So you can spend collateral on those. You spend 50,000 creds and get a role on the local law enforcement table if you're SD agents, for instance. Um, and then, again, in the scenario, there's other things. Depending on if you're, say, defending, you like say you might spend it on traps or you might uh, have a local scout who leads you to the enemy hideout, that sort of stuff. So in a campaign, you can save some of your creds for collateral from the, the payoff of each scenario, or some of it you can essentially put towards your victory, which goes off-world. As I say, it goes to the home for retired muties or it's, you know, it's, um, it's being laundered through a dirty bank somewhere or whatever. And the thing is, that money's then gone. So although it's, move your, it's moving you towards your victory goal, you can't then spend it later to try and get uh, as collateral. Yeah. So it's a balancing act between, do I spend guys, um, do I spend my money on collateral, which helps me in a particular game, but then it's gone. Uh, do I spend it, do I essentially convert it into notoriety, which adds bonuses to my gang, but as your gang gets bigger, um, there's like an underdog bonus. If you, you know, if you spend, if you've got lots more collateral than your opponent, they get certain bonuses to, to even it out. Or do you send it off world, in which case, again, you're moving towards your victory conditions, but um, but that money's kind of gone out of your, your war band. You're not going to be improving it and you've not got it to spend um, for allies and other stuff later. So, uh, yeah, I think there's enough... While still focusing on that narrative, there's there's still a bit of kind of warband management and things like that, and you can obviously add new members in. Uh, you can one of the things we haven't talked about is mounts, and you know you can have, you can get bikes or uh, there's these strange alien mounts called morks, things like that. So normally you'd hire those collateral, but again in the campaign you could buy them, and then you have stables. But then in certain games they can raid the stables and steal them off you, and all that kind of cool stuff. Okay, uh, if we're talking about stats, we should uh, touch on skills a little bit as well. Uh, this is a big feature for named characters, where they've basically got skills that will let them cheat in certain ways, or perhaps give them an extra capability that other models don't have in the game. Hmm. Uh, so, for example, one of the characters in Strunting Dog is Durham Red. Her mutation is vampirism. So she has skills that reflect her vampirism. Uh, Wolfstone Hammer, as Gap touched on earlier on, is, is actually a Viking from the Viking Age, mm -hmm. due to the gift of time travel that exists in Strontium Dog. So he's a berserker, and he has a berserker skill that goes with that. So when he gets injured, he kind of ignores the effect of his first injury, but loses the capacity for um, doing complex things like double actions at that point. Some yeah. of the skills are quite core and... 
uh, cross over several characters, and one of them is the the gunfighter skill, which is worth touching on specifically because that that's a real spaghetti western skill. What gunfighter does for you is if you get shot at and you have the gunfighter skill, if you successfully evade the shot, or if you resist it and get a special result on any of your dice, uh, you get to shoot back and you get to take a snapshot at your attacker. This is the dangers of attacking a gunfighter with a gun. Um, equally, however, if your opponent has the gunfighter skill as well, the same thing applies with them. So you, you can actually get this little bullet time sequence breaking out where two gunfighters like blaze away at each other until either one of them gets plugged or uh, one of them fails his rolls and doesn't manage to do anything clever about it. That's a big consideration, though. Uh, I say there are a few gunfighters in the game. They're highly dangerous individuals when you run across them. There is an equivalent skill called Brawler, which works in close combat as well. And, yeah, never never attack somebody in close combat if they've got Brawler, if you can avoid it. They're, they're two sort of like, I'd say, they're, they're not related to mutations per se or anything like that. They're, they're far more narrative skills, which are there to reflect the powers of particular characters. Mm-hmm. Um there are other skills which specifically relate to a couple of the card systems that we have in place to cover different aspects of what is one of the more interesting aspects of Strontium Dog, which is the, the technology and the cleverness side of things, the, the inter- interleaving plots. Because the technology in Strontium Dog is right up there. I'd say we've got time travel, we've got dimension warps and so on. Uh, one of the weapons that's quite commonly used by Strontium Dogs is something called the Time Bomb, which, uh, if you remember, old style Rogue Traitor 40k it used to have the mm-hmm. vortex grenade in it. Where you threw the vortex grenade and anything inside it just went bloop, and it was yep. gone. Time bomb's kind of the same thing. So uh, that, that's been fun trying to get that in the game as well and not break it completely. And it's not the only example either. There are a few different things like this, as well as things like gas cartridges and jetpacks and force fields and so on and so on and so on. So um, the armory cards are. Um, a way that we deal with that in the game where you get dealt a certain number of cards which will have equipment on them beforehand, which can be things like time bombs, they can be medipacks and so on as well. Some characters are particularly well equipped. Johnny Alpha is an example of a character who's always very well equipped. So instead of having the normal three cards dealt to you at the start of the game, you get, sorry, I'm getting this wrong, you get six cards dealt to you and you normally get to keep three mm. uh, of your choice. Johnny Alpha's side would get to keep four cards of their choice. Nice. And the, there's an equivalent sort of set of skills as well, which are um, far more snaky, uh, called chicanery cards. Uh, and I'll let Gav talk about chicanery for a little bit. Yes, so chicanery. Again, when we when we were looking at the actual strips and all the cool things, you know, there's certain things you can put into a scenario in terms of, like, the, the broad setup. But, you know, how you get in some of the smaller moments... Um, and add again narrative. One of the things that adds narrative to a game is when things happen that are either against the dice roll. So that's always quite fun. You know, they don't go as expected, either mm-hmm. you know massively well, or you know you expected to, like say, Johnny Alpha should pass this cool test no problem and fails. But actually, one of the other things we did was we introduced the idea of chicanery cards, which are a bit like the armory cards in that you get three, and they're for the whole side. They're not for particularly uh, individual characters. However certain um certain leaders or certain characters who are of a 
more low cunning than normal, such as Mac Bubba, get an extra chicanery card. And so there are things that, again, allow you to cheat a lot of the time. There's stuff that allows you to monkey around with the chips in the bag. So either putting them in or t- taking some out and removing your opponent's chips or treating trips, chips differently. Um, there's stuff that allows you to, you know, we, we haven't mentioned, you know, there's actions like going on Overwatch and things. So there's a chicanery card that allows you to put several people on Overwatch at the same time and create a firing line. There's um, <laughs> my favourite one, which is the coolest the cucumber, which is um, based on one of Wolf's sayings, um, which essentially, after you've put the chips in the bag, everyone on your side gets plus one cool. So for that for that turn, you can imagine, you know, they're very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Ooh, actually, the, one of my favourite ones, Gav, one of my yeah. favourite chicanery cards, um, just because it makes me laugh every time it comes up, playing dead. <laughs> yes. Yes, the Playing Dead one, which is from, again, it was inspired by a very specific um, uh, moment. I mean, it's, it's, in the strip, there's a couple of times when Johnny does this thing where he kind of slows his heart down and pretends to be dead. But the actual one that inspired it for me is in there's a strip called The Killing. And The Killing's awesome. We're going to have to write a proper killing scenario at some point, which was essentially is like it's an open arena fight, you know, across the city. Like you turn up, I think it's like come 50 combatants. Um, mm. And it's the last one standing gets the prize, and they're allowed two weapons each. And that's it. And then they just fight until the last man standing. Now, of course, there's a twist in the tail for Johnny and Wolf, because they're, they're there collecting bounties and all this kind of stuff. But there's a particular, uh, just a very short sequence in there, where there's one of the one of their alien opponents has strung himself up from a lamppost, upside down. It looks like he's dead. And Johnny and Wolf walk past, and then, and then there's you know, sort of like uh, the last frame on the page is him aiming upside down at the back of Johnny's head um, and, and just playing dead. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. So, you know, the playing dead card, essentially, if somebody's take, got taken down, they've got more injury markers, markers than they're cool. Then actually you just get to remove their injury markers and they jump back up again um, and they're not really dead at all. Um, so, yeah, that kind of stuff. Again, it adds incident and narrative. And also, you know, there's obviously quite a bit of tactics to manipulate in, you know, the, the cool and running around and stuff like that. But actually, the chicanery and armory cards can just throw the spanner in the works or give you that boost just when you want it. So it stops it being a uh, a complete number crunching game. There's always that element of, oh, actually, look, I've got Max, you know, Max Bubba with the uh, Wonder Shot card. Suddenly, he's going to blazooga me from all the way across the table with a free aimed shot or whatever it might be. So mm-hmm. you're always on your toes. Um, uh, and there's always things that you're going to talk about afterwards, not just about what you rolled on the dice, but when you played that card, when you, Johnny used his number four cartridge to blow up that guy. Um, talking about skills and scenarios, of course, um, one of the other things is the scenarios have. Um, each encounter type, so how you sort of meet, has its own special chicanery options. So, for instance, there's a shootout where the two the two sides meet and neither of them have got their weapons drawn. And uh, it's kind of basically psyching each other out until somebody draws and then the gunfight kicks off. But if you want to, you can, uh, you can discard one of your chicanery cards to use the scenario-specific chicanery, which in this case is actually have D3 of your guys secretly drawn their weapons before you start, things like that. So, as well as... Um, the kind of using chicanery in general play there's also they're kind of a way of uh, like kind of like a chicanery point if you want to think of it that way that you can spend in scenarios for a very scenario specific bonus as well um and then chicanery is also used as part of the underdog system as well and, and in the grudges and things you might get extra chicanery um for you know having a lower notoriety band or if the other guy's beating you too many times and you start resorting to even more dirty tricks so you get extra chicanery cards that sort of thing 
this sounds like the perfect game where you and your mate are playing and you, you know, you want to screw over your buddy. So you, you play some chicanery or, you know, and then he counters it with possibly, you know, a, a cool bit of equipment or gear. Um, and so it seems very narrative. It, it, it also seems very, um, you know, personal and fun back and forth. But it also seems like this is a game that would sort of stretch its wings a little bit if you wanted to play with more than two players. Um, can you guys talk about how multiplayer works in this? Um, I, I'm assuming that it works um, similarly to other games, but um, it's this game seems to lean into that a little bit. Yeah, um, multiplayer is easy as falling off a log with Strontium Dog because it uses this action chip system. With two players, you just use two different colors of action chips going into the bag. Mm-hmm. If you have more than two players, then you just need more colors of action chips, really is what it comes down to, because everything will get handled sequentially by pulling those chips out of the bag. So you can have three, four, five, doesn't matter, players to uh, roll it around the tabletop at once. Very, very simple uh, to translate. No special rules required, really. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. the one thing that we'll maybe do a bit more of... Um, of course, is actually just you know the mechanics work brilliantly with multiplayer, as Andy said. And one of the things is actually just tweaking the scenario systems to work because at the moment most of the scenarios, uh, you know, the gauge is pro- uh, protagonist defender. So actually, the, the, coming up with a you know the, the setup, I suppose, for how those gangs meet is something we can probably build on a little bit if we, if um, if there's demand for that. Yeah, three cornered fights, four cornered fights specifically. Yeah. Things like yeah, killing. Yeah, we might want to do special. <laughs> deployment for them at least yeah exactly i mean the game's fun enough that although we there isn't i mean there is a kind of fairly standard just shoot the the other guy's scenario or job um with the chicanery with the army cards and things like that just putting them down and fighting uh with three players four players will give you enough wrinkles i suspect that you don't even need too much of a scenario you know it could be just as easy you know you could e- easily create uh you know that there's scenarios where you're trying to um you know, break into boxes and see what's inside or get certain markers off the table and things. And they would work just as well with one, you know, with, with several sides as they do too. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things, when, as I was going through the comic strips that I took a note of, is this is a game that would seem to, you could play it on um, a lot of existing terrain that you might already have. Um, I have quite a few, you know, ruined cities. And this seems to, uh, you know, the, the, the miniatures for this would just fit right in on that tabletop. Um, it, was that... I mean, I guess that that comes more from the aesthetics of the comic book than what you planned, but surely you got to love that as a games designer. Oh, yeah, we we really tried to design a, a very open-ended system that would work with existing terrain sets and, and miniature sets that you might have as well. That's one of the reasons we put all the allies in there. Mm. So if you, if you want to press some of your other miniatures in the service. And terrain, yeah, just about anything, really. It's got some broad-based terrain rules. They're quite simple, quite skirmishy, as you might imagine. Mm. Uh, getting exactly Esquire-looking buildings uh, in that very distinctive Pueblo fashion he has might be a bit of a trick, but I'm sure people will pull it off. Mm-hmm. I did I happen... Oops, sorry. I did happen to notice, as you were talking about miniatures, uh, that uh, there are some Strontium Dog comics where he's fighting Nazis, uh, and I happen to have quite a few Germans in my bolt-action collection, so I think I know who... Yeah, um, or, or Vikings. You know, you can fight Vikings, too. Yes. So, black Vikings, evil black Vikings. The, this, these are the many gifts that Strontium Dog gives to us. Is Not only does it have time travel and dimension warping, I mean, it has magic, if we really want to come down to it, because yeah. as Gav touched on earlier on, 
they were just completely fearless. They were like, we will use anything at all we want to in our universe, including sending our strontium dogs to hell, literal hell with demons. So, um, yeah, you can absolutely, you can go and do the shickle gruber job, which is uh, going and grab, grabbing Adolf Hitler for, was it the Time Commission, Gav? Yes, I think the time, yes, that's it. historical war crimes. Yeah. yeah. So, I think, of course, you could extend that, you know, if you've got any kind of sort of... Um, or ancients, you know, you've got any healthies or models, mm-hmm. you know, you can sub in for, for your goons and your sort of, um, and particularly for, you know, like guys with close combat weapons, books and stuff like that, you know, there's, there's, uh, what you use for those really is, is limited by your imagination in the model collection because you, it's just a bunch of guys really turning up and either hitting you or, you know, if they've got bows instead of pistols, you know, you can probably get away with that as well. Uh, and one of the things we did in the campaign again, because we didn't want to have lots of, um, fiddly rules about having to agree. It's like, well, you get Johnny Alpha, and I'll, that means that you're a good guy, and I have a bad guy. And it's like, no, you can use whatever models you've got. As long as you don't have more than two of a named character, as long as you don't have more than one of a named character within your own band, um, you can have as many as you want in their campaign. Because there's shapeshifters, there's sort of, there's mutants that sort of control your mind. There's all kinds of weird aliens and doppelgangers and stuff like that. So the fact that you've got Johnny Alpha and I've got Johnny Alpha just means that one of us is the real Johnny Alpha, but neither of us is ever going to admit that. So, and even and even just from alliances. You can, if you really want to, you can have Max Bubba and Johnny Alpha on the same team because clearly it's not the real Johnny Alpha or it's not the real Max Bubba or whatever story you can come up with because because the, the universe is set up in such a broad way, mm-hmm. um, you can pretty much get away with anything because the writers wanted to get away with anything when they set it up. you know. Um, and so for gaming, it makes it a lot easier than having to worry about, oh, well, yeah, what happens if I take mid face McNulty? Does that mean my mate can't turn up at the club with mid face McNulty? It's like, no, there's the accessibility on it. Like, say, talk about the terrain, you know, it's dead easy because actually you just need a few models and, and some cool terrain to fight over, which you might have from your existing collection, or if you get the, the starter set, and you can get going because you're not, you know, we've we've not made it difficult to put your force together. You're not, you don't even have to agree what notoriety level you're having. So if you just turn up with 12 models and that happens to come to this level of notoriety, and somebody else turns up with three models, it's fine because the chicanery underdog bonus thing and the scenarios themselves will even stuff out. That's fantastic. Um, so yeah, very little very little pre-game preparation even in a campaign so uh what size table do you guys usually recommend for this because it sounds like the the model amount the the model count is is variable um i mean clearly you don't want to probably play it on a four by six because models might take a while to get places but um is, is i'm assuming this is a smaller size table uh, we, we've generally played on either four by four or four or three by three okay. size tabletops. E- either of them works well. Um, you know, for a smallish fight, three by three is plenty because you'll end up fighting in a quarter of it basically anyway. Um, for a, a bigger one with like allies and stuff like that, you might want to go to four by four. I mean, you can have vehicles and all kinds of things. You can get tanks if you get militia and a good role and things like that. So you might want a little bit more elbow room for using vehicles or mounted as well you get people riding around on morks or uh, jet bikes in effect so but generally yeah, yeah it, it, it's a fairly small sort of skirmish size tabletop sorry go yeah. ahead yeah so yeah for the scenarios i, I sort of I, it's what what i've written in the introduction there really is that most of the scenarios uh, as a rule of thumb sort of uh, are designed around a three by three table because that's just what you know we're sort of playing on um in terms mm-hmm. of the deployment distances and things and uh generally we've been using about 
50 notoriety for a starting band, which is which is basically gets you Johnny Wolf and the Gronk, maybe some allies and things, or it gets you Bubba's gang, that sort of stuff. So that'll probably get you between about three and ten models, but not at all. Probably about about three and eight named models, and depending on how much you want to spend on your allies and stuff. So um, if people want to up that, if they're starting to play 75 notoriety games and, and things like that, then they'll probably want a bit more space, because obviously certain things become... Uh, slightly distorted if you've got you know close combat guys if suddenly it's harder to get across the table and and things like that then obviously um the deployments and things will change but it's a very flexible system really um uh so that people really want to if you want to just have johnny and wolf plus loads and loads of goons as we said or not even that if you don't even want to spend your collateral and you reckon you can win it the unspent collateral adds to your victory you know your your payoff credit so you know if you've only got those two models you can still play well this seems like a game that is just it is narrative by design it's narrative in the way that it plays i gotta ask as guys who've been play testing this and building it and getting it everything together for it do you got a good story to share? Because I feel like, yeah, given the the level of chicanery and uh, shenanigans that I, might be happening on the uh, on the tabletop, I, I'm feeling there might be a good story somewhere in here. Do you guys uh, have anything you'd like to share? Um, the, I think one of the notable moments um, during the the testing of it was um, there's a particular scenario where the defender um, has has uh, an informer basically the longer the leader can spend talking to the informer the more that uh, intelligence is worth and so the protagonist is trying to get on take out the informer um and then basically get off again um as quickly as possible so um in this in this particular time we played this andy was using uh, the bad boys who are essentially uh, an entirely mounted band mm-hmm. on these creatures called morks and their leader who's quite nasty um who since he rode in first turn, got a really good turn. Um, they, they come on staggered, so he didn't actually have any of his friends with him at the time. So he rode on. I think I come over. He time bombed the informant, or or did some, you know, used an armory card on the informant, took him out, and was basically herring off towards the other table edge. I suddenly was converging on him, uh, and then his uh, his bad voice turned up. And there's another. Uh, another armory card called the Beam Polarizer, which basically stops you shooting near it. It, it. it takes all the blaster beams. It's kind of like a big blaster magnet sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So one of the Rodon hurled this Beam Polarizer behind them, uh, and the bad boys were just about to escape without taking any damage whatsoever when a heroic effort from Durham Red and a ridiculous long-range shot managed to actually start pinning them down. Um, so it, what almost turned into like literally a three-minute game <laughs> suddenly turned into about half hour of back and forth it, but it was and even if it'd been three minutes it was so entertaining of yeah. him just running on time bombing this informant and then just basically scooting off into the sunset again would just have been hilarious <laughs> uh, so yeah which um, gives you th- enough time to rack up play again and uh let uh, you know you can get your revenge on andy in the next game well, absolutely. There would have been plenty of grudges <laughs> for that one, I think. And and that's the thing. I think, like I say, the, going into it, when we were talking about this, it was all about the storytelling, about the narrative of it. And that's um, uh, that's hopefully what we're going to bring. You know, this, this uh, for want of a better term, this game engine that we've designed mm. with uh, the, the, the chips and, and the, the card play and things will hopefully also add that narrative to the other licenses, um, which we've been talking about, haven't we, Andy? Yes, yes, um, because of course Warlord has, has not got the license just for Strontium Dog. They, they've got the full range of 2000 AD 
uh, intellectual properties, which, which is quite the thing. One of the great pleasures of working on Strontium Dog has been the fact that for our whole rule book, for every illustration we should, could possibly want, we've actually got real comic strips that we can go to, you know, original art that we can use um, from those Strontium Dog strips that we, we remember from so long ago. And that, of course, goes forward into the other well-known 2008 titles like Judge Dredd, uh, like Road Trooper as well, ABC Warriors, uh, Slain, and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. And we've been, when we set out writing Strontium Dog, part of the brief was we were coming up with like a universal system here that we will apply to the other 2008 titles as, as we come to work on them. And Strontium Dog was just a natural for us because it's nice and skirmish based and it has a real mix of elements, a very strong mix of different things of technology, I'd say, right through to psychic powers and sorcery if you need it. Um, so we thought it'd make a good test bed uh, for doing this first game. But we've been in discussion already about uh, future titles we'll do with Warlord. Uh, it's a little bit up in the air at the moment about exactly what we'll do next, but mm-hmm. we've talked about doing Slain, for example, because that's uh, an interesting one because it's it's a rare breed of fantasy comic strip. Mm. There's not many of those around. Uh, and it's got some really good core uh, concepts for the protagonists in it as well. If you don't, if you don't know Slain at all, it's, it's all based around a sort of Celtic warriors fighting back against the evil Drune lords who are poisoning the land, uh, fighting on behalf of the Earth Goddess and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that features a, a lot of warp magic and things like that in it as well. Well, that's awesome. And of course, as an old Dread fan, this th- these set of rules, as you were talking through it today, the whole skirmish and the um, just the way that, you know, things can go wrong and how characters can, you know, accomplish miraculous things or they can be dragged down by, you know, randoms on the street, um, especially thinking of maybe, uh, you know, Block War, for, for example, um, or if you wanted to have the four judges for Judge Dredd, um, you know, Death and the other um, nightmare judges. This system seems to play directly into that as well. So I'm very excited about um, the 2000 AD license continuing, especially if you get into games like Rogue Trooper as well. So, ooh, so many uh, exciting ideas and um, places to go. Uh, absolutely, and the stories that we, you know, uh, they're ongoing. You know, like I say, there's stuff being added to these stories all the time. Um, uh, yeah, and and having now uh, got that system, that game system that works, um, we're already sort of sharing ideas about how we do that with Dread, how we might do that with, mm. with Slain, all that sort of thing. And once those conversations start, then the enthusiasm builds even more because um, I think we've got a really cool game and we've got some really cool intellectual property to work with. So putting the two of them together uh, is has just been great fun. Yeah, and it it does sort of, one of the cool things about 2000 AD comics was that the characters overlapped sometimes. They would be some, you know, they were the original crossover books. Um, People talk about Marvel crossovers and this, that, and the other thing. 2000 AD, um, in my mind, probably did it first. Um, They were constantly jumping between strips. Um, Well, maybe not constantly, but those moments were awesome and memorable. And to have a game system that would allow that, um, is really spectacular as well. Surely you had to be thinking of that as you were writing this as well. Yeah, there's a few times when, uh, a couple of times I think it is, when Johnny Arthur's shown up in um, Mega City 1 mm-hmm. and crossed paths with Judge Dredd as well. Of course, he views him as being a dangerous mutant with alien technology. He tries to arrest <laughs> him every time. Every time. Um, <laughs> 
But yeah, there's some good stuff going on there as well. And I mean, it's 2008. I mean, for both Gav and myself, we we literally grew up reading these comic strips. You know, we, we were kids in the playground when we, we first started reading the, these comic strips. So to be given the chance to actually work on a game about them is it, it, kind of a privilege in many respects. And I, I just hope we can bring across some of the, the, the deep love that we have for these titles uh, for people playing as well. And yeah, and hopefully... Uh... You know, even um, introduce them to some people that then go on to enjoy. The, you know, they'll they'll like what they see and maybe go on and read a bit more and and enjoy some Strontium Dog that um, they would never have thought of reading before. It's true. The, the the first piece of advice I've been giving people is when they ask me about Strontium Dog is like, you know, buy buy the graphic novels. You can get them now. You can get all those those wonderful graphic novels, case files. Have a read through those. Read Portrait of a Mutant, and that will tell you more background for Strontium Dog than we could ever write down in a book in a rule book. Uh, and more to that, show you and give you the feel of what it's all supposed to be about. So great source material. Definitely. Well, guys, I have to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know we talked about it off air, but I am a massive fan of both of your work. And I cannot wait to see what you do with this, you know, iconic license, um, 2000 AD. And just to, to take the the images from the comics that have been so nicely um, reprinted for us to read and then to turn it into a game that we can put on the tabletop and play with our friends um, to recreate those stories and to create stories of our own. Um, given your, your pedigree, it's just, it's just really exciting. And um, in this particular episode, I don't know if the fans have been uh, getting this, but I've been ta- I was tripping over my tongue the whole time, and it's very, I'm just very excited, and I cannot wait to, uh, to get, you know... Johnny Alpha and uh, Sturm on the table and battle some Nazis and fight some mutants and collect some bounties and, uh, you know, just, just to have a good time. So uh, I have to thank both of you for your hard work and for coming on this evening. So, uh, Gav, it, is, it has been a pleasure talking to you for the first time. Thank you very much for coming on. You're very welcome. I hope people enjoy the game when they get to play it. Yes. Oh, I definitely will. And yeah, God, Andy, as always, a pleasure. Uh, I hope I haven't tripped over my tongue too much again. Uh, It is always a pleasure, sir. Always great to come on and talk. Thanks for taking the time out to chat to us today. Anytime, anytime. Ladies and gentlemen, if uh, you have feedback for this particular episode of the Warlord podcast or any episode, you would like to give us ideas of things to talk about um, or you particularly enjoyed or did not enjoy something that we did in this or other episodes, um, you can give us feedback by direct messaging me personally. My name is Brad. Um, You can find me on Facebook through my other podcast page. That's Cast Dice, C-A-S-T. D-I-C-E. If you type that in, you'll find a page called the Land O Misfit Toys slash the the home of the Cast Dice podcast. If you message that page, it'll go only to me. Um, I know quite a few people who listen to this show have messaged me through that page. Uh, and thank you all very much for your kind words and your suggestions. Um, we have been implementing them. Uh, as we go through and as we talk about Warlord's new games and the things that they're up to, if you would like to hear about things in particular uh, or you would like to suggest changes for the show, please send us a message. We always love hearing from you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in. We know that podcasts don't cost anything, but time is often more valuable than money these days for some of us, and uh, we really do take take the fact that you've spent your time listening to us this evening quite seriously. 
thank you very much for your time, and uh, we look forward to speaking about Warlord Games in the future. Thank you very much, and good night.